Thanks for joining the Capital Church podcast channel. For more resources and to learn more about Capital Church, please visit our website at capitalchurch.co or send us an email at info at capitalchurch.co. Most Americans are obsessed with its absence. And so we go on our social media page and like we see Larry with his boat and we're like, well, I don't have a boat, right? And we've located, hear me, we've located worth and value in the accumulation of wealth or money or power or success, and we leave Instagram depressed, right? What, what have we done? We've made a move. We've, we've, we've embraced the worldview that, man, worth and value and significance is located in having stuff. And so if we're not careful, we can obsess over not having something, and obsessing over not having something gives definition to our lives. Now let me just say something real quick. I'm going to be talking about power here today. And when I talk about power, let me just make this very clear. Jesus is not against power per se, right? He's against its misuse, right? So you can... You can have power, you can have success, you can have wealth. This is not, I'm not shaming anyone here today. That's not the issue. The issue is how we use power, wealth, success, right? That determines whether we are in line with Jesus or not. So Jesus, hey, let me make it very clear. Jesus had power, right? Did Jesus have authority? Right? Did he kick some some devils out of bodies? Right? Did he heal the sick? Right, Jesus, right, he's announcing the arrival of the kingdom of God, and things are happening. So Jesus has authority. Jesus has extraordinary power. So when we talk about power here today, we're not talking about power per se. We're talking about its misuse, right? It's funny, I've been in ministry for a while now, and I hear this often when people come to me. They'll ask me, Chris, when... When can I get my platform, right? Or when am I going to make it, Chris, in ministry? Or when, am I gonna be, when can I go to those conferences and I can preach like all those other people, right? And I sense it and there's nothing wrong with them. And my counsel is, hey, don't worry about that stuff. Just learn to love well. Can I get an amen? Right? You still have influence even though maybe people don't recognize it. That's great. But now I'm kind of changing my tactic if I ever have a conversation. Because I think there's, there's something deep inside that question that is lined up with how Americans see power in, in this way. I think we're so obsessed with power if we don't make it, like if our churches don't grow big, if we don't write books, if we don't, man, have big conferences, if we don't change the world, if we don't have status and honor and all this stuff, we feel like something's wrong. And I just, are you hearing me this morning? Am I preaching too hard? I'm just out of love pushing back just a little bit. I'm not suggesting that you can't have a dream from God about doing great things. I'm not saying that you can't make a billion dollars. That would be great. Please tithe, okay? No problem saying that, right? This is not, oh, you got wealth and we're like, ah, right? We hate you or we're shaming you. That's not what we're talking about. 
We're talking about the misuse of power. If you're not first, you're last. This is what shapes American culture. In fact, J.D. Salinger, I think he wrote, right, Catch on the Rye. This is what he said. He's talking about success and power. He goes, I'm just sick of ego, ego, ego. How many of you are sick of ego? He goes, I'm even sick of my own ego. And I'm also sick of everybody else's. I'm sick of everybody that wants to get somewhere, do something distinguished and all, and be somebody interesting. And he says this at the end. He goes, it's disgusting. Thomas Burton, being really hyperbolic, said this. If I had a message to my contemporaries, it is surely this. Be anything you like. Be a madman. Be a drunk. I disagree with that. Don't be a drunk, right? And then I had to excise a few things. He said a few, like, some things. I won't get into it. And then he continues. He goes, be, be whatever you want to be. Every shape and form, but at all costs, avoid one thing. Success. If, you, if, if you're too obsessed, and he clarifies this, if you're too obsessed with success, you will forget to live. If you've learned only how to be a success, your life has probably been wasted. Right? If you're only thinking about my, my 401k, right, is that a thing? And move on, okay? If you're only thinking about the, the bottom line, if you're only thinking about your business, if you're only obsessing about that, I promise you, obsessing. You can still think about those things. But if you're obsessing over that, it will be impossible for you to love like Jesus has called us to love. In fact, I want to make an argument here. I'm going to get back to the story really quick, and i got to hurry through this. But one scholar makes the powerful argument that the greatest myth of Western modernism, I want to say in particular in the United States of America, is the, the Faustian myth or legend. And basically, if you know anything about Faust, he is introduced to the devil. The devil comes to him and says, I'll give you everything you want, right? This is kind of reminiscent of Matthew 4 and Matthew or Luke 4, when Jesus is tempted by the devil. So this devil comes to Faust, and he says, I'll offer you power, and I'll offer you glory. I'll give you your heart's desire. I'll give you wealth. I'll give you pleasure. You can have anything you want. And what does he do? He, he takes the, the devil's wager and says, okay, I'll give you my soul for everything this world offers. But then, and there's a lot of iterations to this story, and there's some different retellings of this story. The devil then comes at the end and says, but there's one thing, if I'm going to give you all this stuff, there's one thing you have to do. If you want power, if you want success, if you want status, if you want pleasure, you cannot love. You cannot love. In fact, the whole story it's predicated, right, power, the obsession with power is predicated on the renunciation of love. Have you ever wondered why it is so hard for Americans to love each other, their neighbors, and their enemies? You wonder why in politics we are so polarized? I like to make a suggestion. I like to say that we are so obsessed with love that, or excuse me, with power that we've made love impossible, in fact, I'm going to make a big argument here. Our obsession with power has eaten away at our ability to love. 
We're obsessed with making it our platforms. I got to get a microphone or I got to be successful. I need to have all this stuff that we have no longer prioritized love. In fact, we, we, we're so success. Are you hearing me? Are you, is it okay that I, I, I kind of get passionate about this? I want you to feel this. But man, I think many times we're so obsessed with success, not only do we not prioritize love, we don't have time for love. We only have time for my dream, my ministry, my preaching, my writing, my academic stuff, and all those things are good things. But I just want to push back in this Lenten series. Before we get to Easter and resurrection and victory and celebration and joy, I think it would be important that we learn something about the cross. And we learn something about what the kingdom of God is like. In fact, you go to Genesis chapter 3 and you have this serpent figure that comes to Adam and Eve and tempts them. I've preached um, on this passage many times. And usually I preach that the reason why Adam and Eve failed is because they didn't trust the goodness of God. And I think that's right. But I think there's another dimension here. Ha-Satan, in the form of a serpent, comes to Adam and Eve and doesn't just tempt them with doubting in God. I think he tempts them into virtue. Virtue, in other words, independent of God himself. So this Satan figure offers Adam and Eve, you could have everything, but you just can't you got to come out from God. you got to become like God. you got to live independent of God. you got to use all these good things that the creator has given to you and use it for yourself. I believe that Western modernism is built on this obsession, this illicit, quixotic love affair with power. So what do we do? What do we do? How do we respond? Well, the story here goes that we read in Mark chapter um, 10. It's really simple. It's about kids. But I need to back up really quick. Last week we talked about Mark, this Mark and sandwich. How many of you love sandwiches? How many of you love a turkey sandwich? Okay, so think of Mark 8 and 10 as a turkey sandwich. you got the bread on the outside, the turkey's in the middle, right? So you have all these different what scholars call pericopes or little stories within a larger story. And this sandwich is a literary device Basically, Mark frames the healing of two blind men in Mark 8 and Mark 10 to highlight the theme of the failure of the disciples. So basically, all these little stories are telling us the ways in which the disciples don't understand Jesus, his kingdom, right? I'm nerding out on you, but is it okay if I nerd out on you a little bit? So this Mark and sandwich is pointing to the failure of the disciples, but it also, Mark loves this literary device of framing. Mark um, is also highlighting the faithfulness of Jesus. So Jesus, as I mentioned before, is cleansing the cosmos, right? He's healing the sick. The kingdom of God is being announced. Things are changing. But then we come to Mark chapter 8, and Jesus is talking about the kingdom. And the disciples are confused. Peter, by the Father, gets a revelation that Jesus is who? The Christ, the Messiah. And then Jesus gives his first passion prediction that he's going to die at the hands of the rulers. And then he's going to be resurrected on the third day. What, is, what does Peter do to Jesus? He rebukes him. And then Jesus counter-rebukes Peter and says, you're not thinking God's thoughts, you are thinking Ha-Satan's thoughts. Basically, Jesus calls Peter the Satan. 
Could you imagine if I called you that today? All of you would leave. Hey, Satan, right? <laughs> Jesus calls his number one disciple, Hasatan. You are acting like Satan. Why? Well, because Peter and the disciples have drawn their entire messianic portrait of the kingdom of God, not around self-giving love, but around a warrior king. About a king who will do violence to their enemies, defeat the enemies, kill them all, right? Usher in the kingdom of God, right? Have status, have honor. The disciples, what do they want? They want thrones. They want power. They want status. And Jesus won't have any of it. In fact, Jesus is not conforming to the uh, categories of pagan mythology when it comes to God, when it comes to kingdom. Jesus is not like Zeus, thank God. Jesus is not even like Caesar, thank God. Jesus is not like Genghis Khan. Jesus is not a king of violence. He's not a king that's bent on destroying and annihilating people. Jesus, are you hearing me? Jesus is driven by self-giving love. And the disciples, I just touched my face. All right. Bring up the Clorox, people. Jesus then starts to have a conversation on the way to Jerusalem, and he begins to teach them about the kingdom of God. So we have the story about kids and children's ministry. And the story goes that one day you got these younger disciples, they're excited about the kingdom. Can you give me about seven minutes? They're excited about the kingdom, and uh, they can't wait to get to Jerusalem where Jesus is enthroned as the king. Parents come. They have their children. They're like, can we please show our children to Jesus? And from there, it just goes downhill. The disciples, they're like, no, kids are a nuisance. Kids are, man, no, no, no. Jesus, he doesn't have time for that. We're not going to prioritize that right now. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, right, to defeat the pagan enemies. Let me just say this really quick. In line of what one scholar has said, what we do with our children is an accurate indication of how we see ourselves or how we think about the world, God, and everything else, right? The disciples obviously are upside down in their worldview or in their understanding or the vision of the kingdom. They don't want Jesus to see the children. Now, let me just say this really quick. In the ancient Near East, children, it's different today than it was several thousand years ago. Children in that ancient world were seen as half-human, right? In fact, in, in the Greek, mostly in the Greek, as one scholar says, um, children, uh, any reference to children, was neither cast in the masculine nor feminine, but in the neuter tense. In other words, when you read Greek, the child wasn't a he or a she, but simply an it. In fact, in the pagan world, fathers had horrifying unilateral control over the family. In fact, there's one letter from an Egyptian father to his beloved wife. I've read this before a couple years ago about his unborn daughter. And he says, once she's born, cast her out. In fact, in the pagan world, this is commonplace. If you had a female, they didn't have prosperity like we have here today. But if you had a female, they were seen as half human. If that, they were thrown out on the street to die of exposure. It was Christians, after the sayings of Jesus, that began to change the whole game when it came to children. And again, this is why we have children's ministry, and this is why children matter. Can I get an amen to that? But children, 
especially female girls, were seen as nothing. They were zeros. In fact, one scholar who I 75% of the time disagree with, I actually agree with this statement. He says, in a startling sweep in this story, we see that Jesus associates children with the kingdom of God. So essentially, Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God is for nobodies. The kingdom of God is, is for those who don't have their life together. The kingdom of God is for those who have gaps in their life and they make mistakes all the time. The kingdom of God is for all the people that everybody else marginalizes. The kingdom of God is for the vulnerable. The kingdom of God is for the fragile, right? Sense the fragility of what Jesus is doing. Jesus touches these children, embraces them, and blesses them. The reason why the disciples are frustrated and they rebuke Jesus is because this is not how kingdoms work. Kingdoms work by exploitation, quid pro quo. Kingdoms work as gaining might, accumulating all the power in the world so you can do what you want to do. And Jesus says, no, we're not, we're not going to do that. Here we have this beautiful story of the weakest, the most vulnerable, in the words of one scholar, the least significant, being included by Jesus in the kingdom of God. Feel that right now. It's not the fastest. It's not the strongest. It's not the perfect that the kingdom of God is for. It's for the vulnerable. Hate to break it to you. There's really no such thing as the fastest or the strongest or the most perfect. The kingdom of God, in other words, is for everyone. What, Chris, are you saying that Jesus is maybe a proto-Marxist or maybe a proto-populist? He's anti-establishment or he's anti-whatever. He's against the bourgeois class. No, that's what we're saying, okay? Um, I'm not a Marxist. Jesus was not a Marxist. Jesus was also not a populist. Jesus was announcing the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God is defined by self-giving love. And the kingdom of God is not just for the pastors, not just for the blessed, not just for those who have the right ethnicity, those who have the right background, those who have whatever it is. The kingdom of God is for everyone. So what does that mean? What, 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 what's our response to this story. Like Jesus then continues, right? In, as we read in Mark 10, 43 through 45, that the kingdom of God is also for servants and slaves. In fact, children, servants, and slaves are the protagonists of the kingdom of God. They're the heroes. So what does that mean? What does it mean to become a child? Well, I think there's several things that are happening here. Can you just give me four minutes? Four minutes and 32 seconds? Okay. Um, what, what are we supposed to do with this text? Do you feel the strain? Do you feel the tension here? Okay. I feel it all the time when I read these passages. Well, when it comes to our children, and when it comes to be a child, because Jesus says, hey, you got to learn to become a child if you want to become a part of this kingdom, right? So what does it mean to be a child? Well, um, I know with my, my kids, I, I observe them every day. How many parents do we have here? Okay. So you know with, with your kids, there's, when they're really young, they can be shy, right? To be a child is to be vulnerable. Have you ever wondered what your one-year-old is thinking about every single day? 
right? Are, they should be in an existential crisis, right? Like, what are they thinking about? They're obviously not thinking about the cosmos, right? What, what, what are they doing? Well, sometimes, yeah, they throw fits. They get that from their mom, my kids. <laughs> they have temper tantrums. They get that from their mom, right? Kidding, they all get it from me. Um, so, yeah, they, my kids do childish things. But what I love about children is that at the heart of being a child is learning to trust that this person and this person is going to take care of me. Like, I don't even know your name. Like, put yourself in a one-year-old. Like, I don't even know your name yet. And this whole life thing is weird, right? And I wake up, and you tell me what to do, and I got to do it, right? What if that... I, our, I never want to go back being, back being a child, right? But Jesus is saying, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you've got to learn to be like a child. So the heart of being a child, there's a sense of fragility. There's a sense of vulnerability, right? You have to, you have to receive love. You have to learn to trust. And you have to what? You have to respond. So Jesus, number one, he says, my kingdom is for the children, the servants, and the slaves. But number two, he says, if you want to enter into my kingdom, you got to become a child. What is that? I think the heart of being a child is learning to respond to love. So what's the answer? Please hear me. What's the answer to our problem or our obsession with power, success, right? Accumulation of wealth for its own sake turning in on ourselves, what will break that obsession? You could try to break that obsession in your own strength and you'll fail. How do you break the obsession, this American quixotic love affair with power? You have to soak yourself in God's love. What does that mean? You have to learn to be vulnerable. You gotta be okay with opposite of how we conceptualize power. That's fragility. You have to treat every single day, and I think this is at the heart of love, that you're not the one who takes the initiative. Like my kids, let me go back to my, my beautiful 17,000 children. <laughs> They're not thinking about, none of them are thinking about how they can take the initiative. My one-year-olds, what are they thinking about? They're not thinking about, oh, man, when I'm 40, I'm going to do this and this and this. Right? Are they thinking about their future? No, not really. Right? Are they thinking about being the greatest, the first, whatever? No, 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 no. Are they taking the initiative with their, you know, their retirement plan? <laughs> but are they thinking about any of that stuff? No. What are they thinking about? They're only thinking about, I mean, among some of their childish stuff, but really the heart of what they're thinking about is how to respond to their parents' love. I love it. When I go into, please hear me, when I go into my kids, my boys, we call them the bubbies, their bedroom every single morning at an ungodly hour, <laughs> tired out of my mind, and I flip on that light, and they see me for the first time, what do they do? Binky in Presley's mouth, and he just beams, and he throws his binky, and he stretches out towards me. King, you got to see, man, his smile will change your life. He just grins, and he has these teeth, and I just love this kid, and I just want to throw him in love. 
Have you ever wanted, your kids are so cute that you just want to squeeze them or eat them? Like, what does that even mean, right? What do they do? They respond. So what's at the heart of the misuse of power? Let me just say this really quick. At the heart of the misuse of power and accumulation of wealth and success, what is it? It's the violation of God's love. At the heart of it, at the root of it, is you want to take the initiative and you're taking the good things that God has given you and you're using them for your own sake. What's at the heart of love? The heart of love is learning to respond to the love that's been given to you. So you know what I do when I wake up every morning? And I think this is so, this is a revelation that God's been giving me over the last few years as he's broken me with seven kids. Like there's, I'm going to be really honest with you now as your pastor. There are so many things that I want to do that I can't do anymore. I like to tell myself it's a season. It might not be a season, right? <laughs> and I've, I've had to learn to be okay with little children. Like even last night, I'm writing this message on power, and my son Presley with his little binky comes up and like wants, to, like wants me to hold him. And I looked at him, and I'm like, no, no, I got I to gotta work on the word of the Lord, right? As so I'm talking about children, right, and reading about children and Jesus embracing them, right? I'm, I'm learning. I'm still in the process. Everyone say the process. But I am learning how to every single day to immerse myself in God's love. And I do that by not thinking in the morning on my prayer drive or when I'm studying or when I'm taking care of kids, not to think about the things that I need to achieve. I've given that up. I'm not thinking about how I can take the initiative. This, is, this doesn't mean that I'm not like setting goals or I'm being lazy. Like that's not what I'm saying. I've given up the misuse of power. I'm okay with not, in the eyes of this world, having all the status. And now what I do when I wake up in the morning and I get in my car and I put my kids in the back car and we go to Starbucks and I get my quad espresso, <laughs> I'm now realizing prayer is not about achieving anything. Prayer is a response to the God who gave everything for me. My reading is not about achieving. It used to be when I was younger, about accumulating knowledge because knowledge is power. But no longer, when I read, I read as an act of love because I'm curious. My time with my kids is no longer, I gotta be with my kids. I've never had that problem, and you parents have never had that issue before. But being with my kids is an act of love because I'm not trying to conquer the world. I'm not, I've given up, and still not, I'm still in that process. I've given up obsession with power because I've learned at the heart of the love of God is learning to respond. It's learning to answer to the love that God has for us and to reflect that back to him in praise and thanksgiving and prayer and worship and you come to church on Sunday and you're just responding to the God, the God of the universe who named every star that Shane talked about four, four weeks ago, who knows every star by name, whose love is an everlasting love, who sent his son into human history and went all the way to the cross and in his death he defeated death. The God who loves us 
right, and fills us with his love is the one we answer to. You hearing me? This is why Paul says it's not that, or he says it this way as I close here. Uh, now that you know God, and he almost corrects himself. No, no, excuse me. Now that you're known by God. No, no, I, and I love that. It's not that we know God, it's that we're known by God. And it's learning to respond to that. It's learning to live in light of that. That when I wake up in the morning, my prayer is just simply an answering to God's faithful love in the morning. Why do we go to nature, right? Why do we go to the mountains? Because we're responding in love. Why do we love our neighbor? Is it because we're perfect? No, because we're responding to God's love. Why do we love our families? Why do we love our spouses? Even though sometimes spouses can be the darndest things, right? We, we, we respond always to God's love for us. Not that we're known or we know, but we're known by God. As I close here, Galatians 2.20, Paul gives us this beautiful exposition on love. Love it. And he says this, it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives within me. I now live by his faithfulness who loved me and gave himself for me. 1 Corinthians 13.13 13 says, what is the greatest? Faith is really good. Hope is really good. But love, everyone say love. Love is the greatest. Ephesians chapter 3, 18 through 22 says, I want you to be filled with the fullness of God. Give up this obsession with power. Let God take care of your business. Let God take care of your future. Come on, somebody. Let God take care of success or whatever or status. You give that to him. If you want to be filled with the fullness of God, Paul prays, I pray that everyone would know the extravagant dimensions of the love of God. Romans 8, this beautiful exposition on creation itself. Paul says nothing can separate us from the love of God. John, the revelator, in 1 John says, it's not that we first loved him, it's that he first loved us. John 15, I love it. He, Jesus is having a tete-a-tete -tete with the disciples. It says, guys, 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 shut your mouths. Because what I'm about to tell you is going to change your life. You didn't choose me. I chose you. You didn't choose me. I chose you. That's what love is. Love is living in light of God knows me better than I know him. It's all about learning that I didn't choose me, but God chose me. That who I am is a gift. And my response or my answer is to love back. It's to praise, it's to celebrate. And then it's to love my neighbor as myself. Galatians, as I close, Galatians 5, 22 says, the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love. And what does love lead to? leads to joy. If you want happiness, learn to love. If you want joy, learn to love. If you want peace and shalom and righteousness, learn to love. If you start with power, I'm sorry, at the very heart of the misuse of power is corruption itself. And it can never give you joy. It can never give you peace. It will not give you patience. It won't give you kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no Law. Let's make this simple here in this Lenten season. Let's give up the misuse of power, right?
Let's, let's let God worry about our platforms and influence, right? Let's learn to love well. Let's learn every single day to respond to God's love. Some of you, I think the reason why you might have a problem with anxiety, not for everybody, but for some of us, is because we're so hurried and we're so obsessed about our success, we cannot handle the stress of that. If we can learn to give all that up and learn to love, to learn to respond, to give up trying to take the initiative on everything, I think that's when God will lead you into his joy, his peace, his righteousness. St. Augustine said this at the very end, love and then do as you please. Love, do as you please. Because when you really love and you know God's love, right, and you're loving people, everything in your life will line up. I like to say, like, let me add a little bit, let me sharpen it up. Start with power, don't do as you please. Because it will lead to the deformation of your life. So in this Lenten season, is this okay? In this Lenten season, before we get to resurrection and victory and all the good stuff, let's be honest with ourselves. As you bow your head and close your eyes, let's be honest with where we're at today. Some of you, your worth has been defined by the absence of success. You go on Instagram and it, just, it destroys you. Or maybe some of us, we've been using maybe our success for our own sake. And we know that every single day we don't start with love. Really what we start with, we start with ourselves. We start with obsession with power and getting things done and making things happen and getting influence and getting platforms or whatever that might be in your life. As our eyes are closed, our heads are bowed. I think this is for all of us. This is for me as well. Let's just ask the Holy Spirit to come and cleanse our hearts from that. And then let's ask the Holy Spirit to fill us with his love. Could you take your hand and put it on your heart right now? Father, I thank you. In this holy moment, I ask you would flood us with your love. Though we give up by your power, we know we can't do this in our own strength. But Lord, we make a decision for this week to give up trying to make things happen this doesn't mean that we don't set goals it doesn't mean that we sit around and be lazy this simply means that everything we do is a response to your love and Lord I thank you that you would help us by your power everyone say power by the power of Jesus who loves us to set us free from allowing things outside of God's economy to define us. Number one, we thank you for doing that. And then number two, flood our hearts overflowing with the mighty, everlasting love of Jesus. I just ask today that everyone in this room, every son and daughter would know your love. Lord, they'd be flooded with fresh insight into how much you care for every single person. Fill us with your love and help us to love like you, Jesus. In your name we pray. And everyone said, can you give Jesus a hand?